let's read uh, Ecclesiastes 11.7 through 12.14. And let's listen with reverence and with joy, because this is the word of our God. The preacher writes, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, Indy Wilson writes in his wonderful little book, Death, or, um, Death by Living is what it's called. He says, as my grandfather watches, I lift each of my children up to kiss their grandmother. Her fast breathing doesn't slow. My turn comes and her head is hot to my touch, hot with effort. But this isn't sickness. There's no disease here. This is what living looks like when it ends. We will sing on a hilltop, beside a box, above a hole. In a few days, I will be asked to stand in a sanctuary and scatter words at her life. 
Along with other grandsons, I will look out at the remaining mortals and use my allotted two minutes to honor my father's mother as best I can. Two minutes or two days, there's not enough time. There never is. But the finish line gives us focus. The finish line gives us focus. Now as we come to the end of our time together in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're reminded largely of what's been discussed in the book all along and what's because of the the times in which we live, what's on many of our minds already, the the inevitability of death, the, the problem of death, the power of death. And of course, in just a few weeks' time, our our city, our state, our nation, this, this world has been turned upside down and confronted with the harsh reality that we are not invulnerable. We are, are, are not indestructible. We are not invincible. We are weak and feeble and fragile creatures. As the the preacher of Ecclesiastes has been telling us over and over again over the last several months, our lives are fleeting. We, we live our short, futile, and frustrating lives, and then we, we die. As the Lord says in Genesis 3.19, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. As Chuck DeGroat once said recently, he said, you are dust is, is not an insult, it's an invitation. It's an invitation amidst your grasping and hiding return. God doesn't meet you at the top of the ladder, but on the ground when you've fallen off. And he's right. The finish line gives us focus. It gives us focus to live the the lives that God intends for us. It gives us focus to give our full attention to what God has called us to in his son. It gives us focus to rejoice in this life that we've been given. It gives us focus to live in God's presence for the sake of his great name during the short time that we have here. It gives us focus to live full lives under the lordship of, of God. And that's our big idea in the text this morning. We see here in Ecclesiastes 11:7 through 12:14 that in light of death and judgment, both of which are coming for us all, we ought to live full lives under the lordship of God. In light of death and judgment, we ought to live full lives under the lordship of God. And we're going to explore that big idea by seeing the preacher's call to rejoice in God's gifts, to remember your creator, and to revere your judge, to rejoice, remember, and revere. Rejoice in God's God's good gifts. Remember your creator, revere your judge. And first, we see the preacher's call to rejoice in God's gifts. It begins by saying that, that light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Now, in in context here, he seems to be kind of drawing a comparison between life and light. As a kind of analogy, speaks of light as, as the, the goodness and pleasantness of life. And of course, we know having some, some cloudy days this last week, a cloudy day today, and having also some sunny days from this last week, having sunny days, it's like a, a breath of 
fresh air. It just does something to your soul, your mood, your attitude. It's pleasant to feel the, the warm sun on your, on your skin and to, to see the, the, the light that the sun casts on all around you. And likewise, the, the preacher is telling us that life in many ways is, is good, it's pleasant, it's, it's worth the energy we put in to enjoy it. And so he tells us to enjoy it. He, he first gives this counsel to a person who's becoming mature in years. He says, starting in verse 8, he says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is hevel. All that comes is smoke, is vapor. And of course here, the, the darkness is placed in contrast with the, the light of life in verse 7. So he's speaking about death here. He's speaking about the, the years of, of decay and death that we experience all around us. And indeed, we, we know from Ecclesiastes and from personal experience that this futile and frustrating life is fleeting. It's like smoke or vapor slipping through our fingers. We know that death is coming. We know that the, the darkness of death is, is looming. And so he says it's, it's all the more important because of that to enjoy the good things in life, the pleasant things in life. We ought to enjoy good relationships, good food, good times with good friends, good music, good weather, and more. We ought to enjoy and rejoice in these when they come because they are God's gifts to us. And if God is the giver of these good gifts, we would honor him in our enjoyment, in our proper enjoyment and proper rejoicing in them. And so he goes on to encourage young people to do the same. He says in verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Of course, this, this particular verse might come as a a shock to us. The, the, the preacher is, in essence, telling us, he's saying, follow your heart. Pursue your desires. And don't misunderstand. This, of course, is not permission to follow the sinful desires of our hearts, since he goes on to the next verse to say that for all these things, God will bring us into judgment. He's saying that we ought to follow the desires of our hearts insofar as they are not wicked or unwise since we're going to stand before God and give an account and be judged one day. You see, we ought not think, though, that biblical Christianity chokes out any notion of, of freedom or enjoyment in our lives. Some things are indeed forbidden by God's word. We, we shouldn't take the preacher's Exhortation here is a, a license to gluttony or drunkenness or sex outside of marriage or, or the like. But, but on the other hand, all legitimate pleasures, all the legitimate pleasures of this world are left wide open for our enjoyment. This is God's world. We just sang, this is my father's world. This is God's world. This is his creation. He created food and drink and sex and sunshine. He is the one who created endorphins. He's the one who created and enabled us to experience pleasure. He's the one 
who created mountains and oceans. He is the author of all beauty and all legitimate pleasure. And so he says, rejoice, enjoy, take pleasure in my good world. He says, rejoice. He says in verse 10, don't don't dwell excessively on what is painful and grievous in this life, but enjoy the blessings of this life. And again, this might be somewhat of a shock for us to hear. We very well might be used to to Christianity, seeing Christianity, viewing Christianity as a way of life that renounces the things of this earth, not embraces them. And that reminds me of one of my favorite little nuggets from C.S. Lewis. He once wrote, he said, there's, there's no use in trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That's why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life in us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity taught that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in and of themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, and that some kind of body is going to be given to us in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, our energy. You see, Christianity isn't isn't opposed to the proper enjoyment of the created order. Christianity isn't opposed to desiring and rejoicing in the pleasures of this life. We we believe that this is God's world created for our enjoyment. That's why John Calvin once said that there's not a blade of grass, there's no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice in God. And so the preacher, while still heartily condemning the foolishness of sin, heartily commends to us the enjoyment of God's creational gifts. He would commend to you the enjoyment of gardens and hikes through the woods. He would commend to you flowers and tree shade, laughter and music. He would commend to you fixing and eating a good meal, even in the midst of this pandemic. He would commend to you giving your full attention to a piece of music, enjoying it and relishing it to the glory of God. He would commend to you the enjoyment of a good book, a good conversation with a good friend. He would commend to you good conversation and and, and enjoyment of life and even sex with your spouse. The days of darkness are coming, old age and death are coming, and so we would commend to you the habit of rejoicing in God's good gifts while you can, for, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.4, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This is one of the ways that the finish line gives us focus. This is one of the things that the finish line brings in to focus. Another way the finish line gives us focus is is that it shows us the necessity of remembering our creator, which we see here as we move into verses 12, 1 through 8. Of course, rejoicing in, in God's gifts cannot be the only piece of instruction we receive in light of the reality of death. Because of the reality of death, 
It reminds us that God's creational gifts, as good as they are, they are, are fleeting to us in some ways. A good meal is a gracious gift, but it soon passes through your mouth, into your stomach, and eventually into the sewer. Not only that, but as you age and become more and more mature in years, you, be, you begin to lose the ability to enjoy good food. Eventually, in death, a good meal will do you no good at all. And that's true of all creational pleasures. There's a time coming where you won't be able to participate in athletic activities or, or even to watch them. There's a time coming when you won't be able to enjoy reading a good book or going on a hike or embracing your loved ones. Old age and death are coming. And so the preacher says, verse 1 of chapter 12, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Then he goes on here in chapter 12 to describe old age and the imminence of death and these kind of vivid metaphors. It begins with comparing old age and death to a kind of ominous storm. Off in the distance, you can see these, these dark clouds gathering off in the distance. You know it's coming. There's nothing you can do about it. He says that you ought to remember God before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Not only that, but he goes on to compare old age and, and death with the decay of a household and its inhabitants. He speaks about the, the, the keepers of the house who tremble and the guards at the gates who are bent over. The keepers of the house are, are your legs that are all shaky and trembly with old age. The guards at the gates being shoulders that are slumped and, and bent over. He speaks about the loss of teeth as grinders which, which cease to work, meaning that your teeth will cease to chew food because they're few. He speaks of the loss of eyesight as windows that are dimmed and the loss of hearing as doors that are being shut in the street. He speaks of the loss of deep sleep when, when he says that one rises up at the sound of a bird or, or the inability to enjoy listening to music when he says that the daughters of song are brought low. He speaks about the almond tree blossoming here, which is a metaphor of, of one's hair going all white. And of a grasshopper dragging itself along, an insect that at one point in time was all spry and agile, can now barely walk. So it will be when you increase in years. He then says that in those days, desire fails, which speaks to the loss of, of sexual desire. And the inability to engage in this, this activity of the covenantal renewal of marriage. And he speaks about death as the destruction and loss of valuable household items. He says, the silver cord is snapped. The golden bowl is broken. The pitcher is shattered at the fountain. The wheel broken at the cistern. All of this a metaphor of death as he says that the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Here's the message that he, he wants you to get, friend. You are going to die. Death is coming for you. You are going to die. You might be able to delay it, but you won't 
escape it, not completely. It's inevitable, no matter how rich or poor you are, no matter how much or how little you exercise, no matter whether you eat non-GMO veggies or Twinkies, whether or not COVID-19 reaches your household, this pandemic passes quickly or it lasts a long while and it reaches your household. The reality has always been and is still the same. You are going to die. Perhaps one of the ways we're benefiting from this current crisis is by becoming more acquainted with the the fragility of our lives, the fact of the inevitability of our deaths. As Carl Truman rightly said this last week in an article, he said, modern Western cultures tried valiantly to domesticate and marginalize death, both by taming it, taming it through fictionalized representations in movies and TV shows, and by keeping the real thing out of sight. Of course, as is always the case with reality, you can only deny it for so long before you collide with it. Life is, is not all pleasure in rejoicing. The dark days are many. Life is fleeting. Death is inevitable. And therefore, we ought to, the preacher says, remember our creator. Remember your creator, knowing that the day of death is coming. N- knowing that the day is coming when you will no longer be able to enjoy God's good world and, and the legitimate pleasure of his creational gifts, you may still Im- enjoy him and his promises and his presence and his providential care. Remember God, he says. And, and to remember here isn't so much an antonym for forgetting. Rather, he's telling us to consider God in all things, to be mindful of him in all things. The big idea here is to live your life, as the, the theologians of old put it, corum Deo. Live your life corum Deo. It's a, it's a Latin phrase that means before the face of God. Live your life before the face of God. Of God And R.C. Sproul said that to live our lives quorum Deo means to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. That means he's present everywhere. And so therefore, there is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. In other words, to live quorum Deo is to continually live our lives mindful of the presence of God. Always be mindful of the presence of God. Don't don't profess to be a Christian, but then live like an atheist. Be mindful of him in all of your thoughts and your actions. Consider him in all your decisions. Base your decisions, your thoughts, your actions, your entire life on the promises and the statements and the foundation of his word. Pray to him daily and follow the guidance of his word because although the creational pleasures of this life fade, the pleasures of knowing him and being in his presence never fade. And when the curtains of your life begin to close, his presence and his promises will make you a person, even then, of resilience 
hope even in the face of uncertainty, even in the face of darkness, even in the face of death, you can be at peace knowing that what your creator has given you in his son can never fade away. The finish line brings this into focus. Rejoice in God's gifts. Remember your creator. And lastly, since we know that with death comes judgment, as Hebrews 9.27 tells us, Close with this call to revere your judge here in verses 12, 9 through 14. Section begins with perhaps a kind of editor closing the book. And he speaks about how the preacher, the, the King Solomon of Ecclesiastes, how he wrote and ordered many proverbs and words of wisdom, and how he was wholeheartedly committed to observing and learning and living according to the truth of God's word and God's world. And of course, he advises caution and seeking out wisdom. He says that too much study can exhaust you, but nonetheless, we have to heed the preacher's wisdom here. Sometimes the truths he communicates might be hard and difficult for us to understand and stomach, but they are truths that we can hang our lives upon. This last exhortation is often one of those kinds of truths for us in the 21st century, one that's difficult for us to, to hear, but nonetheless is necessary and good for us to consider, to hang our lives upon. It says, starting in verse 13, that the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now again, when he tells us to, to fear God, he's not telling us that we ought to be scared of God and therefore stay away from him. Remember, he just told us to live life Coram Deo, to always live before the face of God, to always live in and for his presence. So rather than be scared and stay away, the preacher's telling us that we have to be filled with awe and reverence before him. We ought to have a, a healthy respect and reverence for his power and wisdom and sovereignty and holiness. We ought to revere him and submit to his authority as the one true God. And of course, a healthy reverence toward God will always cause us to, to seek to be careful and to pursue obedience to his commandments. Acknowledging him as our creator and God and judge causes us to acknowledge that it is also our duty, therefore, to obey his word. And so while we are, of course, free to enjoy God's good gifts in the way that his design and word allow, while we are free to follow the passions and desires of our hearts in pursuit of legitimate pleasure in his creational gifts, we are not free to disobey God and reject his goodwill for our lives. For that, we will meet with his judgment and condemnation. And indeed, God will judge us. He, he promised that he will. And he's even given us a down payment on that promise. He, he has even given us assurance that he will judge the world in righteousness. As we've looked at several times throughout this series, we do well to remember the Apostle Paul's words in Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
We will all one day stand before the the sovereign of the universe, our creator, our holy judge, and give an account for our lives. And so the beginning of wisdom, we can conclude then, is to revere him and obey him. Of course, this might be a, a matter of confusion for some of us. Rightfully so, our our church has continually and habitually spoke about and focused on and preached about and sung about the goodness and the grace of God and his salvation for guilty sinners like us. And so this business about fearing and revering him can be difficult for, for some of us to understand sometimes. But these two truths, that God is holy and just, and so we ought to fear him, God is good and gracious, so we we ought to approach him in humility and trust. These are not opposed to one another. These don't need to be reconciled. They're friends. As you may well know, our our family loves the Chronicles of Narnia. A little while ago, uh, we read the, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to our children, and uh, we loved it. They loved it. It was a great time. Uh, and for those of you that don't know about the book, it's about these, uh, these four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and their kind of introduction to this magical alternate universe, this magical world, the world of Narnia. And um, this is another realm, it's another universe, it's a magical place with with unicorns and talking beavers and giants and witches. And the ruler of this great land is the great lion, Aslan. He's the rightful king. He's the object of worship and affection for all true Narnians. And one of my favorite scenes takes place when Peter, Susan, and Lucy, and then Mr. and Mrs. Beaver approach Aslan for the first time. It's a sobering scene. They come into the, the camp where Aslan is staying, this, this war camp. And they arrive and they're waiting for Aslan to come out. And then when he comes out, their, their knees buckle. Mind you, Aslan is, is surrounded by these awe-inspiring, fearful creatures. He's surrounded by unicorns and, 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 and centaurs and a bull with the head of a man and leopards and, and more. But they can't take their eyes off of Aslan, but they can't quite look at him at the same time. They're they're struggling. His glory, his greatness outshines them all. And and, and, and so the beavers and the children, they start to kind of nudge one another forward. They they, they all kind of nudge each other along to approach Aslan. Mr. Beaver says, you know, go go on, Peter. And Peter says, no, no, that's okay. You you first. Mr. Beaver says, no, no, uh, sons of Adam before animals. And so Peter looks over to Susan. He says, you know, Susan, how, how about you, ladies first? And she says, no, you're the oldest. They're, they're, they're so filled with reverence and awe at the presence of this great and majestical lion. They almost hesitate to approach him. And Lewis says something so profound. He says that the children didn't know what to do or to say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought, though, they were cured of it now. 
For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of his golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. So it is with our holy sovereign, our great and glorious God and King. His holiness demands our reverence. His sovereignty demands our obedience. His justice demands our awe. And the finish line brings this into focus. And of course, we we can't close without remembering together that before God, all of us rightfully stand condemned. My life, your life, under his judgment, cannot, will not be worthy of his commendation and welcome. You and I have not revered him as we ought. We have not obeyed his commands. We have not lived according to his design and his will. We haven't remembered him as we ought. We've all sought our own ways and sought out our own schemes, as the preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes 7. Instead of enjoying his creational gifts of food and drink and sex and relationships and money properly, we've worshipped them in the place of God. We've worshipped the gifts rather than the giver and based our lives on temporal pleasures rather than the eternal God. In and of ourselves, we're worthy of nothing other than God's condemnation, and it's too late for us to earn anything else from him. But God, although we deserve nothing but his condemnation because of his great love for us, he would not leave us without the way to redemption. And so the Son of God came, And he took upon himself our humanity. He took upon himself a body like ours and became fully human. And he lived the the perfect life that we should have lived. He enjoyed God's good gifts of food, of friendships, of family and the like, but he didn't worship them. Instead, he remembered his God And Father, he lived his entire life, Coram Deo, in the face and presence of God. He revered God. He obeyed God. And therefore, he alone deserved God's commendation and welcome. But instead, he went to the cross to suffer as a wretched sinner for us and in our place. So now, if you trust in him, if you trust in Christ, the judgment day that you deserve happened 2,000 years ago. And the judgment day he deserves is what awaits you when you stand before God on that final day. You are freed from your guilt, from your unworthiness, from condemnation, and you now stand before God gloriously complete, completely welcome into his presence. And therefore, you can live your life coram Deo without fear of punishment for your sins forever. And that's not all. 
three days after his death, Christ arose again. So that death and decay is no longer the final word for us. Instead, on that day of judgment, you and I will be raised up with him to live forever with him in a renewed and perfected creation where we will enjoy his good gifts with him and in his presence in a world without end. That's our true finish line. And it gives us focus. And so now, in light of death and judgment, in light of God's salvation, in light of the eternal life we have with him, May we live full lives under the lordship of God. This is the final word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. You've given us your word to reveal to us who you are, what you've called us to, what you have done to save us in your son, and therefore the freedom that we have in him to live full lives under your lordship. Would you help us to do so? Strengthen us by your spirit to obey and adhere to what we have just seen in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.